This episode of Crosscut Escapes is presented by Forterra, land for good. So I'm holding the salmon and I speak to it in our language because I've been taught the animals can understand Salish. They can't understand English, but they speak Salish. So I spoke to him and I just said, please be strong. Please know you're, we're with you. Thank you for coming back to us. And I said, go get him. And I put him, put him in the river. Hello, listener. Welcome to Crosscut Escapes. I'm your host, Ted Alvarez, and I want to show you something. For as long as there have been humans in the Northwest, there's been one river to rule them all, the Columbia. It dumps more fresh water into the Pacific than any other river in the Americas, and its mouth is so perilous, it's been called the graveyard of the Pacific. It's gobbled down more than 2,000 ships since the 1700s, and even today, specialists called bar pilots brave its turbulent waters to guide ships through, sometimes earning six figures for their trouble. But it's really so much more than a waterway. It's fed entire civilizations and inspired exploration, settlement, wars, reclamation. It drives history and culture here in a way that is hard to wrap your head around. Luckily, Crosscut's very own historian-in-residence, Knut Berger, can help us out with that. Probably the earliest memory I can think in summer camp, we used to sing Roll On Columbia, the Woody Guthrie song. And we all knew that it was this mighty, powerful (laughs) river. We were parroting the New Deal era propaganda without really thinking about it. Green Douglas fir where the waters cut through. Down her wild mountains and canyons she flew. Canadian Northwest to the ocean so blue. It's roll on Columbia, roll on. Roll on Columbia, roll on. The Columbia River is this defining geographic feature of the region in so many ways. The major way is access. Native peoples traded up and down the Columbia. It was this incredible artery of communication and trade before the explorers and fur traders even arrived. Lewis and Clark, of course, followed the Columbia out to the Pacific Ocean, which was a big deal. There'd been a lot of interest. People felt that there was a great river of the West. They'd heard rumors about it. They had trouble discovering it. When George Vancouver came, he came up the coast, he missed the mouth of the Columbia, and so did other people. But it turned out to be this incredible, important artery for access. Of course, the fur traders were able to use it to get into the interior and expand trade networks. So you had the Hudson Bay Company and other fur companies. The mouth of the Columbia became this incredible portal, and the British and Americans sort of fought over control of who was going (laughs) to sort of own the river. The river also became a border. The Columbia River divided the British claim to the Pacific Northwest from the American claim to the Pacific Northwest. And there was a long contentious negotiation and debate over how far North America would go. And would the British let us have it? 
you know, it's been a, a really important artery and an important boundary from, you know, time immemorial, but certainly in the period from the late 18th century with white settlement and exploration, it was the centerpiece of the region. All the wealth and opportunity the wild Columbia offered wasn't enough for those settlers or for the ones who came after. So they tried to tame it in many ways, none more significant than the dams. There are 14 on the Columbia. The very biggest is the Grand Coulee Dam, west of Spokane. At 550 feet tall and almost a mile long, it's one of the very biggest structures built by humans. And it turns out Old Woody had a song for that, too. Cast your eyes on the biggest thing yeah, built by human hands. It's that King Columbia River and the Big Grand Coulee Dam. Bob Dylan eventually covered it. Growing up, you'd hear these stories about the dams or and what a transformative thing they were. And of course, they were hugely transformative to the region. I think in some ways that transformation was come to be second-guessed or reconsidered with a greater environmental consciousness. And I think people realized how devastating those dams were to the salmon. And those songs by Woody Guthrie have dated <laughs> in a way because singing in that spirit of sort of New Deal 1930s industrialism and the working man and, and this kind of thing. And then you realize, of course, the devastation to Native peoples and to orcas and the fishing industry. And there was really a, a lot of negative consequences. And I think now, you know, poor Woody is a lot of the people who, who in the 60s were singing, lustily singing those folk songs or songs that he actually wrote on commission for the government look at it now and it it's, gives you a lot of uncomfortable feeling about the kind of boosterism. The dams helped transform thousands of miles of dry sagebrush into a fertile farmland, and they still generate enough hydroelectricity to power almost five million homes. But the cost was extremely high. The resulting floods displaced tribal communities and drowned ancestral fishing grounds used for thousands of years. One of the most painful losses was that of Kettle Falls, a series of rapids where at least 14 tribes met to fish for spawning salmon between June and October. In June of 1940, the Colville tribes gathered as many as 10,000 members from at least eight surrounding tribes to mourn the loss of Kettle Falls and what is remembered now as the Ceremony of Tears. Kettle Falls is now under 380 feet of water. There was up to millions of salmon that used to swim above Chief Joseph and Grand Coulee Dam. The second largest tribal fishery in the Columbia River was at Kettle Falls, where the tribes from all around the Northwest used to congregate and to share in the harvest of fish. There was a huge run of summer Chinook that were affectionately called June hogs. They were called June hogs because they swam past Portland. In the late 1800s, there was there's uh, records of commercial harvest of tens of millions of pounds of, of these large summer Chinook, most of which were headed for the far upper Columbia, far into Canada. This is Casey Baldwin. He's a senior research scientist with Colville Tribe's Fish and Wildlife Department. He explains that by the time the Grand Coulee Dam was built, salmon runs had already been severely depleted by habitat loss and overfishing downriver. 
As such, the Grand Coulee doesn't have the fish passages other dams on the river have, and hatchery operations were put downriver hours from where Colville tribe members used to fish. The dams effectively ended salmon and steelhead runs that used to run in hundreds of tributaries, like the Sandpoyle River. It also effectively ended a traditional way of life for thousands of people. We never, you know, were consulted. We never were uh, included in anything as far as when the dams went in, uh, how it would impact our way of life. And I think most didn't even realize, you know, why the, at first why the salmon stopped coming until, you know, later on. Jared Michael Erickson is the Natural Resources Chairman for the Colville Confederated Tribes. He's also a wildlife biologist working with Baldwin and others to bring back salmon above the Grand Coulee Dam to rivers like the Sandpoil. So we're, you know, probably know that we're salmon people. So it's, I don't know, a single tribe member that doesn't want salmon back into these blocked areas and back to where we can fish them right out of, you know, where we live, right directly by where we live. And it's a big, uh, daunting task. Daunting seems a little bit like an understatement. How do you get fish that spend their lives traversing from river to ocean and back to come back, especially now, when there are 500-foot walls of concrete in the way? Baldwin and Erickson are quick to point out that they're building on years of salmon restoration work and research done by tribes, state and federal governments, nonprofits, and volunteers. Fish passages have since been built into dams, wild fish have been integrated into hatchery stock to make them better able to survive, and habitat restoration has happened all along riverbanks. And as Baldwin told Northwest Public Broadcasting once, fish have a way of finding the right habitat and using it when you give them a chance. So in August of 2020, Colville tribes hatched a plan to release 100 adult Chinook salmon from the Chief Joseph Hatchery downstream above the Grand Coulee Dam. Each one was outfitted with the Passive Integrated Transponder Tag, or PIT Tag, so they could track where the salmon went, if they survived, and most importantly, if they spawned. But before any of that, Baldwin had to get the salmon on a truck. We'll jump in after a word from our sponsor. It takes work to sustain a place for all of us. For over 30 years, Forterra has been doing that work, taking action to promote resilient communities and healthy ecosystems across our region. From planting thousands of trees each year to developing attainable housing to helping conserve over 250,000 acres of land, the Washington-based Land Trust has built programs and partnerships to advance conservation, restoration, and community resiliency across the state. For more information, go to forterra.org. That's F-O-R-T-E-R-R-A dot org. Okay, back to the show. Welcome back. Before the break, scientist Casey Baldwin was explaining how to get fish on a truck. It was a week-long process of collecting the fish, collecting the samples, holding them, and loading them on a truck. We moved anywhere from 30 to about 60 fish per truckload. Then it's anywhere from a half an hour ride in the truck to the fish that we hauled to Kettle Falls in Northport. That was about a four-hour ride in the truck. We were working with adult summer Chinook, and, and they're pretty hardy. The process of moving up through the, the fish ladder into the hatchery, getting sorted there and sent out to a pond isn't too hard on them. Moving them to the truck can be, you know, we, we took some steps like making sure the water temperatures were fairly consistent. Probably the biggest risk was 
if they go from too cold of water in the truck, too warm of water in the reservoir, and the reservoir is pretty warm that time of year, so that was an uncertainty. But we were able to temper the water temperature to split the difference so that they could adapt as they were being transported. But it's definitely stressful on the fish, and that's part of the reason why we were so happy with the results we saw from the, the fish that we did tag and were able to evaluate. Their survival rate was, was really good. The salmon had some very special helping hands to get them above the dam. Colville tribal members helped release the fish by hand into various spots above the Grand Coulee Dam. It was the first time salmon had been above the dam in generations, and for many, it was an indescribable experience. It's hard to find words. It isn't easy to explain. I always say this, but it's like a part of me was missing that I didn't know was missing. Why in Chaisquis while Kinsinpa Wheel is Sinaiqsht? Hello, my name is Crystal Kone, and I'm a member of the Sampoil and Arrow Lakes bands of the Calvo Confederated Tribe. I didn't know that we would actually get to touch the salmon or how involved we'd get to be, but I just knew I was going and I needed to be a part of that. It started out, of course, with prayer, thanking the salmon, thanking the river. The elders and the council gave a little bit of history of what we were doing there and who to thank for making it possible. And then they just had us build a line and all of the tribal members and whoever else was there, we all stood in a line and they passed the salmon down and passed the salmon down. Other people got to go first and I just kept slowly making my way closer and closer to the river and thinking, oh, I'm gonna get one, I'm gonna get one. I didn't know that I was actually gonna be the last one. I'm holding the salmon and I speak to it in our language because I've been taught that animals can understand Salish. They can't understand English, but they speak Salish. So I spoke to him and I just said, please be strong. Please know you're, we're with you. Thank you for coming back to us. And I said, go get him. And I put him, put him in the river. Jared Michael Erickson attended the releases too. It was very uh, emotional. My mom, you know, she's an elder now. She hasn't, she hasn't ever had salmon as far as like up where we live ever, obviously. And so a lot of elders that they didn't understand, I think their true connection until we were re-releasing the salmon. You know, a lot were crying. They couldn't understand why my mom was one of them. And like I said, she hasn't been, you know, directly related to fish in a long time or, you know, and so it was, it was emotional for me. It was emotional for a lot of our tribal members, and it was, it was beautiful. October brought even better news. The salmon were spawning in several places above the Grand Coulee Dam for the first time in 80 years. By using drones and walking the riverbanks, Baldwin and other researchers found at least 36 salmon reds, basically nests where they laid their eggs. So on paper, it looked like there was enough spawning habitat to support salmon and that they would use it. But when you actually put them out there and then walk up and down the stream and see them holding, see them using the overhanging cover, see them building reds and interacting, that was really rewarding to see the, the fruits of the labor. The three or four years of planning and working and talking about this and then to actually get out there on the ground and see them spawning was a really, it was a really neat experience. 
I was ecstatic. I literally laughed out loud. I read it on my phone. The news article popped up and I I just laughed out loud. I couldn't believe it. I guess I a part of me was skeptical at first. Oh, the, the water will be too cold. We've hurt this river too much that they aren't going to make it. They aren't, their eggs won't come. Nothing will work because we and the people have hurt that river too much. But all the prayers, all the ceremonies, all the work that everybody has been doing for centuries, it's working and, and they're here and they're back for us. And I, it's, I just get emotional about it, really. While the 100 salmon died after spawning, as all salmon do, the juveniles they spawned from their eggs will migrate downstream, as their ancestors did for millions of years. Whether they will survive to return and spawn themselves is unknown. Even if they could make it past the Grand Coulee Dam, they face daunting challenges like rising water temperatures and predators like invasive pike. But these salmon pioneers prove that there are miles of feasible habitat beyond the Columbia's dams, and that one day, if enough of us want it, we could restore the Columbia to its wild self. If that happens, then maybe the new song we'll think of when we think about the Columbia and the Grand Coulee Dam will be the same as the oldest songs. That's it for this week's episode. Many thanks to Jared Michael Erickson, Casey Baldwin, and Crystal Conant. Mary Davison generally shared sound recordings of Colville Tribe's salmon releases. Additional reporting came from Courtney Flat and Northwest Public Broadcasting. You can find a link to her story on our site, crosscut.com. This episode was engineered, mixed, and scored by The Explorist. You can subscribe to Crosscut Escapes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on Crosscut Escapes, go to crosscut.com forward slash escapes. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. Crosscut Escapes is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Ted Alvarez, and we'll be back with our final episode of the season next week. <laughs>